A Focus Summary of Part 1, Chapter 14 of Silas Marner Molly was given a pauper's burial, and though her death was unnoticed and unwept, for some it was also charged with the force of destiny. Silas's determination to keep the tramp's child became as much the subject of gossip as the theft of his money had been. But now the contempt and suspicion that had surrounded Silas was softened by active sympathy. The women of Ravello were all at the ready with their varied and often contradictory child-rearing advice. Among them, it was the gentle, neighborly offices of Dolly Winthrop that Silas found the most acceptable. She brought him a bundle of garments once worn by Aaron, introduced him to the great ceremony of bathing, and fawned over the little angel, rubbing the golden curls and kissing them. She asked with puzzled interest how the child had come into Silas's cottage, and he shrank under her questions, fearful of facing his own suspicion that he might have been in one of his trances. Dolly spoke with soothing gravity about the things that come with no striving of our own, concluding that Silas was right to keep the child, seeing as it had been sent to him. He might be confused from time to time, but she would help him through. Silas accepted her kindness with cautious gratitude, fearful that the girl might become fonder of Dolly than she was of him. Not a moment later, as he leaned close to baby to learn the mysteries of dressing, she seized his head in her hands and pressed her lips against his face. Silas took her in his lap, trembling with a mysterious emotion. If he tried to give his feeling utterance, he could only have said that it felt as if his gold had turned into this child. Dolly complimented Silas's paternal impulses, and then questioned him about what he would do to keep the child safe from trouble while he worked at the loom. Silas meditated a moment, and then said he'd tie her leg to it. Having raised four boys, Dolly expressed her doubt that this would work so well and then mused a moment over what it would have been like to raise a girl. Marner hastily reminded her that the child would be his and no one else's. Dolly agreed, but then, coming to a point she had been waiting to touch upon, added that he had a right to her only if he brought her up like christened folk's children, and she suggested that he speak to Mr. Macy about it that very day. Then, having spoken from the depths of her simple soul, she waited in silence for evidence of their effect. When Silas confessed that he didn't know what it meant to be christened, Dolly addressed him with gentle compassion, said she'd speak to Mr. Macy about it, and suggested he begin by fixing a name on the child. Silas thought he might call her Hepzibah, after his mother and sister, but when Dolly suggested this was too much name for a little girl— he proposed they call her by his sister's nickname, Epi. Dolly approved, and turning to go, wished him luck, gave assurance that it would come to him, and told him he need look to nobody but her for help. On the rector's recommendation, a baptism was held not just for Epi, but for Silas, too. Silas could find little to identify in the Ravelo religion with his old faith— He knew only that Dolly had said it was good for the child. And it was in this way that the child created fresh links between his life and those of his neighbors. 
where worship of his gold had kept his thoughts in an ever-repeating circle, leading to nothing beyond itself. Epi led him to seek new things, made him look for ties with his neighbors, reawakened his senses to fresh life, and warmed him to joy. When the sunshine grew strong and lasting, Silas could be found sitting in the meadows while Epi toddled around plucking flowers and listening to the birds, calling Dad-Dad's attention and laughing with joy. When the sight of familiar herbs brought painful remembrances, Silas sought refuge in Epi's happy little world. As her mind grew in knowledge, his soul unfolded into full consciousness. Her demands on him gathered force with each passing year. She asked more questions, required more attention, and developed a fine capacity for making mischief. Poor Silas was reluctant to punish Epi, but Dolly insisted that it was good for her and must be done. If he didn't have the heart to spank her, he might do as she did with Aaron and make her spend a minute in the coal hole. Silas trembled at the idea of implementing either of these penal methods, fearful that Epi might love him the less for it. One morning, when Epi was tied to the loom with a strip of linen to keep her out of harm while Silas was busy at his weaving, he left some scissors on a ledge which Epi's arm was long enough to reach. She had been captivated by the click of the scissors, and at the first opportunity stole like a mouse from her corner, secured them, and concealed them behind her back. In two moments she had cut the linen strip and run out into the inviting sunshine. It was not until Silas needed his scissors that he noticed Epi was gone, and he was shaken by the worst fear that could ever have befallen him. In dread he ran out eagerly to the stone pit, through the high grass of the meadow, around the hedgerows, and to the small pond across the next field, where he found Epi sitting in the mud, discoursing cheerfully to her own boot, which she was using as a bucket. Here was a case that clearly deserved punishment, but overcome with convulsive joy, all Silas could do was cover the child with half-sobbing kisses. When he got home, it was the idea that she might run away again that gave him the resolution to follow through. He held her on his knee, told her she was naughty, and reluctantly informed her that he must put her in the coal hole. This news was met not with tears, as Silas expected, but with excitement at a pleasing novelty. He put her in, and when, after a brief moment of silence, he heard a little cry, Silas promptly let her out, saying that now she had learned never to be naughty again. He washed her, put clean clothes on her, and returning to his loom, determined he no longer had need for the linen band, since surely she had learned her lesson. A moment later, he found her peeping out with black face and hands, saying, Epi in de toll-hole. The total failure of the coal-hole discipline prompted Silas to renounce the practice of punishment altogether. Instead, he made his stone hut a soft nest for her, lined with downy patience. Silas took her with him on most of his journeys to the farmhouses, and where he had once been treated as a queer and unaccountable person to be looked at with curiosity and repulsion, he was now received with open smiling faces and cheerful questioning. 
Masters and mistresses were eager to commiserate over the challenges of child-rearing. Servants were fond of carrying the child out to see the chickens or pick cherries in the orchard. And boys and girls approached her slowly, like little dogs face to face with their own kind. No one was afraid of approaching Silas when Eppie was near him. The love between them blended them into one, and there was love between the child and the world. For fifteen years Silas had thought of Ravelo life as a strange thing with which he could have no communion. Now he thought of it entirely in relation to Eppie, and sought everything from it that was good. After his gold was stolen, the new coins he earned brought no thrill, but now something had given his earnings a growing purpose, a joy beyond the money. Eppie was like some little angel who led Silas forth gently towards a calm and bright land.'